Well, have you ever watched the same movie twice in a row? Maybe not right away, but just a few days later, or a few weeks later. Something I almost never do. Usually that's reserved for that big blockbuster that just makes you come back a second time. But if you do this, during your first viewing, you're just sitting back, taking it in, enjoying the spectacle. And you watch it a second time, it really changes things. You can think on it a little bit. You know what's going to happen. The suspense is all taken away. But you can pay more attention to the smaller details and the bigger picture. This might actually give you a greater appreciation for the movie. You wouldn't want to do this with every movie. Normally, you want to be on to the next thing. But every now and then, uh, a big picture just makes you watch it twice. And it can be worth it. And sometimes, that's how it goes with preaching. Here at this church, we preach through the Bible verse by verse by verse, which means each week is just on to the next passage, on to the next verse. But on extremely rare occasions, we might encounter a passage that's so rich and meaningful that it seems to merit a second viewing, a a second look. And that is what we have going on for this morning. This morning, we're going to look at the exact same passage we preached through last week, the same two verses. And they really are that special. They're worth watching twice. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. It's the beginning to the Beatitudes. You can take your Bibles and open them there now. Matthew 5, 3 through 4. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which I love. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's the single greatest discourse Jesus ever gave. It's the longest of his teachings we find recorded in Scripture. All Scripture is equally inspired, but it's special to hear the Lord himself teaching and speaking. The Sermon on the Mount is a great monument to the nature of Christ's kingdom. And that being said, the Beatitudes, they're really the foundation to that monument. Everyone marvels at the Statue of Liberty, but its glory would be greatly reduced if it didn't sit atop that pedestal, which itself is a monument of architecture. And likewise, the Beatitudes, these opening verses, they frame and they uplift the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And they're worthy of examination their own right. And if we can take it one step further, if the Beatitudes are the foundation to the Sermon on the Mount, then the first two are the cornerstone. Found in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, these first two Beatitudes, they set the lines and the angles against which everything else is measured in the Sermon on the Mount. These show us that Christ's message come in a context of gospel grace And they have as their primary subject, spiritual truths of the kingdom of God. Again, these two verses most definitely merit a second look. Last time we did more of just a straight exposition of these two verses. We studied them, explained what they meant, trying to arrive at the correct interpretation of Christ's paradoxical sayings. But time didn't afford us very much reflection on the impact of these spiritual truths. I didn't want to let that slip by. So I decided, bring us back to verses 3 through 4 one more time before we move on and keep marching through. For less an exposition on these first two Beatitudes and more a meditation, a reflection. I want us to tell us, sit, think, and reflect how these truths should impact life, uh, family, and the church. And speaking of the church, we would be so much more effective if we simply put into practice what Jesus says here in these Beatitudes. Our walk and our witness become ineffective when we're not living these out, especially these first two. 
The church needs to chew on and digest these Beatitudes much more than it does. It's what fuels us for impactful living. And don't forget, just by the opening word, blessed, as he says throughout these Beatitudes, proclamation of blessing, this is the only way to blessing. I mean, do you want to be blessed? Do you want divine favor, God's approval? If you would just submit yourself to what the Lord says here, you would find true blessing. It's like Jacob. We want the blessing. And we're not going to let go of these beatitudes until we get it. And so we're going to, for a second time, cover Matthew 5, 3 through 4. Let's begin and just read through this passage again. It's pretty short and sweet. We'll just set it up, starting in verse 1, and, and see the beginning of the Sermon on Mount one more time. Matthew 5, back in verse 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And to start, I want us to first recall the meaning of these first two enigmatic sayings. What what do they mean? Then we'll move on to spend most of our time reflecting on them. But it starts with being poor in spirit. And last time we we found, we labored to discover this is not talking about the financially poor, but the spiritually poor. These are the spiritual bankrupt who come to terms with the fact that they have no assets with which to earn God's favor. And meanwhile, their sin debt just piles up into heaven. In short, this is the sight of of sin and all of its consequences. This describes the prodigal son when he came to his senses. And he finally realized all the wrong he had done, his good father. And that broke him. He, it led him to mourn. And like Christ says next, blessed are those who mourn. Where after the sight of sin should come sorrow for sin. Thomas Watson said, quote, the eye is made for seeing and weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for, end quote. And the knowledge of your spiritual bankruptcy should bring you great sorrow. This morning we found is a godly grief over sin. You see how your sin has hurt yourself and others. And above all, God, you have endlessly transgressed his law. You've been running headfirst into hell. But now you are broken and contrite of spirit. Those who mourn like this are are those who rend, not their clothes, but their hearts in contrition before the Lord. A sorrow over their sin. And they take it to the Lord, pleading for his mercy. This sorrow, all by itself, would be an anchor sinking the soul down into the abyss. But it's greeted with the Lord's forgiveness. And that's what lifts our spirits makes us think of of that prostitute who came to Jesus washing and anointing his feet with her own tears. And she was so broken over her sin in the presence of one who is truly righteous that the sorrow in her heart came out of her eyes. And she expressed that to the only one who could touch her and make her clean. And that's what Jesus did. He pronounced her sins, although there are many, are forgiven. Those who try and hide their shame, their spiritual nakedness before the Lord will be uncovered. They'll be found out. They'll be met 
with a, a just and a harsh judgment. But those who take their sins to the Lord, uncover them, and plead for mercy, find forgiveness. The word for this, if we, put, if we could put the first two Beatitudes in one word, it would just be repentance. It's just repentance. Those who've been made poor in spirit, who've mourned over their sin, those are just checkpoints on the path of repentance. True sight of sin and true sorrow for sin, they build up an incredible pressure in the soul, and it, it, it needs to be vented out. You, you seek relief. There's only one vent for this guilt. It's the mouth, and you must confess, forsake your sin, and, and turn to the Lord to find that relief. This is unlike Pharaoh, who claimed to be sorry for his sin, but he ran back to his rebellion the second the plagues stopped. No, rather, the repentant are those described by Isaiah 55 Verse 7, which says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God. He will abundantly pardon. Augustine revealed how before his conversion, before he was genuinely saved, he used to confess his sins to God and, and ask God for power to overcome them. But in his heart, he secretly whispered, but not yet, Lord. He knew he was unwilling to actually forsake his sin. He fell short of repentance, and that's why he found no power to change, no power over his sin. But the repentant, they hold nothing back. They're, they're fully ready to abandon the ship of self and swim to Christ. And the reality is that the spiritual bankruptcy we reflected on last time, it, that's the condition of everyone on the planet. Everyone's on a sinking ship for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And thankfully, rescue is available. Christ has come. He holds out hope of forgiveness and eternal life. But many refuse him. They refuse to recognize they're spiritually bankrupt on a sinking ship. Instead, they hold on to their sinking ship because at least they're their captain and they can call the shots. They can live how they want. And that sounds great until you hit the icy water and your sin will plunge you down. But those who mourn and those who are poor in spirit, these are the people who have recognized their condition before it's too late. And that leads them to do the only sensible thing. Abandon ship. You abandon self. Abandon autonomy. You swim to Christ. You confess him as captain or Lord. And then you just beg to be made the lowest galley level slave if he would just let you aboard. This is where the comfort comes in of which Christ spoke. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That God is a gracious and merciful Savior. And God's grace is greater than all of our sins. And Christ, he brings us aboard. He grants us entrance to the kingdom. And he makes us not slaves, but sons. And all of our sin debt, which damned us, he takes it, he throws it overboard. He casts it into the depths of the sea. That's Micah 7.19. We are forgiven. We're made righteous. The ultimate blessing of salvation is found only in Christ. And it's only given to the repentant. And those are people who mourn over their sin, who see it. And they're made poor in spirit. 
All this is, is really just a summary, a taste of everything we learned last week. But even still, you can again see what, what type of foundation these first two Beatitudes give us on which we're only going to build. In fact, before we just move on from these first two, I, I want to, like I said, come back and build on them. Think on them a little bit more. I want to take this notion of repentance, which is engraved in these first two Beatitudes, and dwell on it further. And like I said, now this will be more of a meditation than an exposition, but I want to give you two reflections on repentance that you might find God's full blessing, that Christ promises blessed, to a pair of reflections on repentance that you might find God's full blessing. And the first, the blessings that accompany repentance. We're going to just take this further. Uh, The blessings that accompany repentance and and explore further what those are. You see how Jesus pronounced those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. He pronounced them blessed. That blessing is not singular though. It's, It's manifold. It is the blessing of salvation and everything that accompanies it. Last time we focused more on the depth of that blessing as it pertains to our forgiveness and our salvation. Now I want to show you more the breadth of that blessing, how, how wide it is. And so here under this point, I'm going to give you six, in short order, six other blessings that accompany repentance. That when you repent, when you embody these first two beatitudes, six other ways you're blessed. First, repentance puts the conscience at rest. Repentance puts the conscience at rest. God created us with the conscience. It's meant to steer us away from wrongdoing. When we sin, it and that turns on us and accuses us. Romans 2.15. The soul is not meant to be at rest in sin. Our conscience should and will plague us with guilt and shame. And the only outlet for these is repentance. Repentance is the only release valve that relieves us from the pent-up guilt brought on by sin. And just don't underestimate the value of a perfectly clean and clear conscience. This is what can put your soul at rest. And the longer you walk in the darkness, and the longer you tolerate sin, the more you're going to doubt. The more doubt will grow in your heart. Is God really my father? Am, am I really saved? Repentance deals with this guilt. As we uncover our sin and take it to Christ, we're reminded of his forgiveness and we're reassured all over again. Oh no, God, he's no longer my judge. He is my father. I am his child. I'm fully reconciled to him. Again, it's just like the prodigal son who came to his senses, saw his sin, repented, turned back, went back to the father's house. He was prepared just to beg and be accepted as a slave. But he found that his father ran to him. And embraced him, kissed him, lavished gifts on him, and and celebrated his return. And in that moment, the son's burdened conscience was fully relieved through the father's acceptance. Likewise, that prostitute who anointed the feet of Jesus was told by him that her sins, though many, they're all forgiven. And in that moment, her, her tears of sorrow could now turn into tears of joy. Her soul and her conscience could finally find rest, but only after repentance. 
though our sins have reached into the heavens, Christ came down from the heavens to, to pay for them. And his forgiveness enables us to live in perfect peace. And even now we can draw near to the Father. Like Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Secondly, repentance suffocates sin. Repentance suffocates sin. We are forgiven in Christ, but that doesn't mean we we get a license to go on sinning, do as we please. In fact, now we don't want to. Being given a new nature, we want to walk by his spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh. We aim to bind the flesh in a straitjacket that it might not lead us astray. But you realize every time you sin, it's your flesh breaking out. And it breaks out of its restraints. It takes over. And the longer you delay repentance, it means the more time your flesh is in control. And your flesh, it just wants to go on a sinning spree while it's free, before it gets locked up again. And the longer you allow that by delaying repentance, that the more sin will result. That's how sin begets more sin. But repentance is what stops the spread of sin in its tracks. When a believer comes to see his sin and mourns over it, there's a sorrow that it shatters the love of sin in his heart, that the affection he has for wrongdoing from the flesh is soured. And that it just has the effect of stealing the oxygen from the flame of sin, which it needs to survive. In repentance, it really involves the recognition that, that when we sin, it's like we have thrust a spear into the side of Christ. We don't want anything to do with him or his righteousness in that moment. But as we repent, we, we recognize what we have done and it breaks us. We are sorrowful over our sin. In that moment, though, the mercy is that, that the blood of Christ just flows down and forgives us, cleanses us. That's a marvel of God's grace. And that fact should have the effect of stopping us from our next spear thrust. And third, repentance endears us to Christ. And that's a blessing. Repentance endears us to Christ. Think one more time of of the prostitute who anointed the feet of Jesus with her tears. Again, after forgiving her of her immense sin, Jesus went on to say after that, that the one who is forgiven of much loves much. It's only when you see the magnitude of your sin against God, a holy God, that you deeply mourn over it. And it's only when you deeply mourn over it is when you finally see the glory of Christ's salvation. I mean, the fact that he loved you, he would give himself up for you. That should draw out a great love for him in return. And you should remember that every time you repent. The sight of sin and the sorrow for sin, they're not meant to leave you in despair. They're meant to transport you back to the foot of the cross where you're reminded what, what he did for you. And Christ is your only treasure in life. That, that will evoke a love for him that, that pleases God and blesses you. Here's another quote from Thomas Watson, of whom I often draw inspiration of his classic work, The Doctrine of Repentance. And he writes, quote, Oh, how desirable is a savior to a troubled soul. Now Christ is Christ indeed and mercy 
is mercy indeed. Until the heart is full of compunction, it is not fit for Christ. How welcome is a surgeon to a man who is bleeding from his wounds. End quote. Man, when we turn away from God, we, we think sin is sweet, but it's never satisfying. But when you come to Christ, your, your taste changes and you find now sin bitter. Only Christ satisfies. And as you're sanctified throughout the Christian life, through much repentance, you want less and less to do with sin. And you want more and more to do with Christ. Number four, repentance fits us for service. Repentance fits us for service. In Isaiah chapter six, we read this morning, God had a mission, but he didn't have a messenger. And so God asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah 6, 8. But if you recall it, it's only after the iniquity of Isaiah, the prophet was removed. Only after all of his sins were forgiven, that he was then able to respond to that call and say, here I am, send me. And likewise, Saul, only after he was converted by the Lord on the Damascus road, being convicted of his sins, only after that could he then respond when the Lord told him what he must then do. You see, repentance is the means by which we're forgiven by Christ and made clean. And God being holy, he only wants to use clean, holy, purified vessels for his kingdom work. He's only interested in using that which is clean. And we are, we're made clean in Christ. We're justified, but we walk in the world. Our feet get dirty. We need Christ to continually wash our feet, render us clean, that we might be fit for service in the Father's house. And it's only the repentant heart that is truly fit to serve the Lord and obey him in any sense that pleases him, in any sense that he accepts. Only the repentant have yielded up their will to the Lord. And they're the ones who are truly ready to say, here I am, send me, use me. Number five, repentance makes us long for heaven. Repentance makes us long for heaven for heaven. We should be so grateful for the work of Christ, which enabled our justification, that that we're we're, we're saved, we're right before the Lord. And by faith and by repentance, we can be made right or justified by God. But we know that we're we're still not glorified. We're justified, but we're not glorified. And that just means we, we still retain the sinful flesh. We find that there's a principle of evil within us, Within the flesh, Romans 7, 21. We see a law of sin residing in our bodies, trying to enslave us again. And it is this flesh you must fight all life long. And when you stumble, you're called to repent. But you take that and you scale it over many years. That type of a battle can be wearying and exhausting. And you might be tempted to find relief just through escapism, escape into the passing comforts of the world. But no, rather, I I would let your battle purify your longing for heaven, where you're seeking comfort in Christ and what he promises. Like Paul, you wonder, Romans 7, 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
And the answer is Christ. He will do that in glory. That day is coming. Right now, we are free from the penalty of sin. We're totally free from the penalty of sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin. That comes in glory. We will be free from the presence of sin forever. That means you will not sorrow over your sin eternally. The day is coming when God will wipe away every tear from the eye of his people. Revelation 7, 17. And it's only right to long for that day. It's a blessing to long for that day. And that longing should in turn cause us to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And that should lead us to live now as if we belong there because we do. One more now. Six ways we are further blessed in repentance. Number six, repentance pleases God. Repentance pleases God. And isn't that our goal? Second Corinthians 5.9 says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That literally just means dead or alive. Our, our mission, our purpose in being created is to be pleasing to God. And now that's our desire to please the one who saved us. God is pleased by many things. You might say he's pleased by offerings. He's pleased by sacrifices. Sure. But do you know what pleases God above all? Repentance, right? Holiness, a humble heart. Psalm 51, 17. David knew that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And until he gets that offering from you, he doesn't care about your other offerings. If you come with defiled hands, treasuring sin more than him, he does not accept your offerings. Only after you render your heart to him as the offering will he accept everything else you bring. And what do you think really causes God delight in heaven? What, what causes the heavenly host to burst out in celebration? We, we get the impression that like what heaven rejoices when we complete a new building project or we have a really good offering on a Sunday morning. But no, heaven doesn't care about that per se. Luke 15, 10 tells us where it says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just just one sinner who repents causes the angels to rejoice. That's what God cares about. And immediately after that verse, by the way, the very next verse tells us about the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal. And the point of that whole story is that God is pleased when prodigals return, i.e. when sinners repent. It's just like the father in that story later said, Luke 15, 24, he says, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And then it says, and then they began to celebrate. That's what causes God to celebrate. And so is it your true godly ambition to be pleasing to him? And you have to ask yourself that honestly. Do you live your life ultimately just to, to satisfy your own wants, pleasures, and desires above what God wants? Or do you flip that? Do you, have you yielded? Have you crucified your thoughts, desires, passions, what you want in life, and you've just held it up to the Lord and said, your will be done first and foremost. 
Have you submitted your will to the master's will that you might be pleasing to him? And if that's you, I can assure you that, that nothing pleases him more than just your ongoing holiness, your repentance, rooting out ongoing sin. In salvation, you have inherited God's blessing and his power through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But just like the Israelites found when they inherited and took the promised land, pockets of enemy resistance remain. And if you want to be fully blessed, you have to drive them out, continually drive them out, lest they stumble you. And this is why you must continue to see your sin and sorrow over it. And don't tolerate any of sin's high places. Repent and you find continually God's blessing. Now, as we've learned, this blessing is not just for the life to come. It, it's very much for this life as well. God blesses us richly now. If only you would embody these first two Beatitudes. We haven't even gotten to the other six. If you just embody these first two, you all, already would be so blessed. These, right, this, right now, we have six short reflections on the blessings that accompany repentance. And each by itself may not seem like much, but you put them all together and They're like a shotgun blast. You feel the force that when we repent, we really are blessed. That blessed are the repentant. Now at this point, I want to take these reflections on the blessedness of repentance even further. Because that's all we're doing this morning. But I want to do that by now showing you the flip side. One of the reasons repentance is so blessed is that by it, you avoid the curses that come with unrepentance. Right? You know, one of the ways to gain appreciation for something is to consider the alternative. And so let's do that now. The alternative to repentance is not good. This will only further make us see how blessed are the repentant. So a second reflection now. Number two, the curses that accompany unrepentance. It's the opposite side. The curses that accompany unrepentance. If you look at Matthew 5, 3 through 4 again, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. If that's true, could you say the opposite? Could you say, cursed are the rich in spirit? Cursed are those who laugh. Could you say that? Yes, you could. And in fact, Jesus said that. If you want to really quick turn to Luke chapter 6, in Luke's gospel, he too records snippets, a shorter version, like the cliff notes of the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke alone records how Jesus, right after giving the Beatitudes, he also pronounced a series of woes, where in addition to promising a blessing, he also warned of God's judgment, the curse of his judgment. And look at Luke 6, 24 and 25. Only in Luke as related to the Beatitudes, but it's just the opposite. Luke 6, 24, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you will, you shall mourn and weep. Make no mistake, he is still speaking spiritually, just like Matthew, just like we've learned. These are spiritual truths. It's the same paradox, just in the opposite direction. 
This is now talking about the spiritually rich, which is to say the prideful, the arrogant, the self-righteous. These are the people who ignore their sin debt before God. They think they've got no problem with their bank account, that God will surely accept their goodness. I mean, they haven't really checked it in a while, but they know they're just fine. God would, of course, accept them. And so they don't live life clinging to Christ. They, they, don't, really, they don't really need him. Instead, they live in and of the world. These are people who don't see their sin or mourn over their sin. And Christ says, woe unto them. Which means that they're not under God's blessing. This is a pronouncement of divine cursing. And such people will never know God's blessing, meaning his favor, his acceptance. They will find rejection and eternal judgment unless they repent. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins shall die. Without repentance, they have no access to Christ's forgiveness. And so they're left dead in their sins, and they will be cast out of his kingdom into that outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Without repentance, there can be no saving faith so as to receive God's grace. And without God's grace, that means you're still under God's law. And the only thing God's law brings you is a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And so, look, have you kept every single law of God your whole life perfectly? Not even close. And that means the law of God condemns every man and places them under the curse of his judgment. And the law gives you nothing else. The law yields no blessing to the one who's violated it. It's only judgment. It's only repentance that gives you access to God's grace where you avail of Christ who became a curse for us. But the one who doesn't do that, who never sees his sin, who never mourns over his sin and then goes to Christ, never finds that blessing. They're just cursed eternally. And this is obviously the greatest curse that attends unrepentance. But there are others. And so whereas we found the blessings that accompany repentance, they're broad, they're many, they're numerous, they're they're multifaceted. Well, you know, so are the curses that attend unrepentance. So let's reflect on these now a little further. Here are three, three of these curses that come with unrepentance. First, unrepentance steals Christian vitality. Unrepentance steals Christian vitality. As Christians, we are fully justified in Christ, which means our sins are forgiven, but until glory, we're still sinners. And that's why faith and repentance need to continue throughout life. Not that we can be re-justified or re-saved, but that's and so how we can experience the full joy and fellowship we have with God and be fit for his service, like we learned about. And God's ways are best. He calls us to forsake our own way, the way of sin. And that, that's just for our own good. His ways lead to life to the fullest, while sin steals life. In fact, you'll find that sin is like a thief. 
And for those who tarry in repentance, for those who delay repentance in their lives, they're going to find that sin steals and takes from them far more than it offers in return. And even Christians can fall prey to this. And as a result, sin steals their vitality. For example, first, sin steals your joy. It's not possible to truly rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in your sin at the same time. That's an either-or proposition. And you're meant to have a constant delight in the Lord because of your salvation. But when you're living in sin, that's taken away. King David felt this. He experienced this, which is why he later prayed. Psalm 51, 12. He prayed to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. He prayed that because he lost it because he wasn't repenting. He was living in his sin. Your soul knows when you're walking outside of God's light, when you're living in the darkness, and you're not meant to delight in that or be happy in that. Secondly, sin steals your effectiveness, sin as a thief. Your effectiveness both for service and for worship. Again, your heart of hearts knows when it's being duplicitous. You stand before God, you say, here I am, I'm ready to serve you. But you know that you have one hand behind your back with fingers crossed. God will not use one who has defiled himself in sin any more than you would use a shovel that has just fallen into manure. Let it first be cleansed, then you'll use it. Likewise, God, he will not use or hear those who regard their sin in that moment more precious than his son. I mean, you just try, if you haven't before, you try reading your Bible, singing praise, or praying while you're living in sin, and you're going to feel as if all your devotion just bounces off the ceiling, just falls back to the ground. Heaven has been shut to you, it feels like. And you know what? Rightly so. You should feel that way. James reminds us, speaking of the prayer offered not in full faith, and that would include a hypocritical prayer. It says James 1, 7 and 8. He says, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then thirdly here, sin steals your assurance. How, how sin is like a thief stealing your vitality. It will rob you of your assurance. This can be a very serious consequence to unrepentance. You know, as Christians, we're meant to walk in the, the full assurance That we've been saved. We've been reconciled to God. It's well with our soul. That way we can devote all of our energy just to serving him and and spreading the kingdom. But when you don't see your sin or mourn over your sin habitually, you're going to lose some assurance that you're even in the kingdom. When you spend more time walking in the darkness, you're going to start doubting if you're really in the kingdom of light. and, And you should because Doubt is a built-in consequence of unrepentant sin. The solution is just to repent, but unrepentant sin is corrosive to your faith and assurance. Just in case your car ever gets egged, you got to wash it real quick, right away. Don't let it sit, because egg yolk and egg white are both corrosive to your, your car. They will eat through if they're left to sit They'll eat through the clear coat and the paint. And so the key is to not let it sit. This ever happens to you. But likewise, sin is corrosive to your faith 
to your assurance. If left to sit, it will start eating away at your assurance of salvation. And true salvation is always secure. You cannot lose true salvation. But sin can rob the assurance of that salvation by rendering you quite ineffective. And furthermore, ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin will start to call into question the reality of your saving faith. In all, the peace Jesus promised to leave us with is stolen when you allow sin to remain in your life. The vitality of your Christian life will suffer as a result. And that's not a blessing. That's a curse. One which can befall even Christians who momentarily get entangled by sin. There is good news, namely that you know, all these consequences can be instantly erased if you just repent. If you would just forsake your sin and your way and just repent, you will find that the waterfall, that the dam burst, that was holding back God's favor and blessing on your life, and, and that will re- restore to you. We must cast down your sins and repent. Secondly now, a couple more. A second overall curse that attends unrepentance. Unrepentance disables marriage unity. Unrepentance disables marriage unity. And I thought it was just worth it to point out the type of curse repentance can bring on a marriage. Because that's such a huge part of life. Marriage is is God's perfect institution for human flourishing. It's made before the fall where two become one to serve God together. After the fall, that can still happen, but it is an uphill battle because now every time without fail, it's two sinners coming together, living together, trying to be united. But sin, by its nature, divides. What do you think happens if, if that sin is not dealt with? Two people come together in marriage. Early on, they don't see the faults and the sins in their partner. They overlook them. Emotion and attraction blind them. But a few years later, the veil falls off and they see their spouse with all of their sins and all of their faults. This is where, though, the grace and the glory of repentance can restore and sustain their union. If only they could just humble themselves, both of them, daily. And confess their sins to one another daily. And exchange his full forgiveness daily. Then all that sin that threatens their union would lose its power. Sin hates the light. It's like mold. It thrives in the darkness. So the couple who together, they drag their sin against one another into the light all the time. They gain power over that sin. But on the flip side, you have the couple who both are digging in their heels in pride. And so each day they refuse to confess their sins to one another. Each day they hold on to a grudge. And each day they're not forgiving. Well, they're going to divide. And it's going to lead to a whole host of other relational hardships and suffering. And there are some spouses, some couples who in, in great pride, they do fantastic with the first beatitude. Right? The sight of sin. The problem is, it's just not their own sin. All they can see is the sin of their spouse. Meanwhile, they completely ignore their own faults. They never mourn or grieve over their own sins, how they have likewise 
damaged and hurt the relationship. They just constantly point the finger at their spouse. They heap all the guilt of the relationship on the one. And that type of pride is going to kill love, affection, and unity. And if you're here and your marriage is under such a curse right now, again, good news. You can change that instantly, today, right away. By just humbling yourself, seeing your own sin, mourning over it, and repenting. Go before the Lord and then before your spouse in repentance and just deal entirely with your own sin. Some later time you can trust your spouse or help your spouse to see their sin, but you just focus on yourself. You humble yourself first. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. His grace is great enough to restore long lost marriage joy. If only you would repent. Lastly, final reflection here. Ways unrepentance brings a curse. Thirdly, unrepentance dilutes the church's potency. It's kind of a mouthful, but unrepentance dilutes the church's potency. I just wanted to include one last reflection this morning of of what happens when now, not just a person or a marriage, but a church, a local church, or the church at large, what happens when they do not manifest these beatitudes? What happens when a church does not see their sin? What happens when a church does not mourn over their sin? You have a church that doesn't preach repentance or practice repentance or promote repentance. You have serious trouble. And this is not merely hypothetical. I think some of you have experienced churches where you never once heard so much as a passing reference to repentance. I think we all know there are many popular churches in America. They work very hard to posture themselves so that they never appear serious. It's like, God forbid, they never want to appear serious. It's a cardinal sin because that that puts people off, doesn't invite newcomers. It's a little bit scary. So they have a very concerted effort to always appear only positive, uplifting, happy all the time. Always smiling, never serious, right? Always smiling, never serious. You just try exploring the the websites of the 10 largest churches in America. That's kind of what you find. These are churches that each take in 30 to 50,000 people each week across dozens of campuses. That's an amazing reach. But with what message are they reaching all these people? When you explore their sermons, I did this this past week. It really was a needle in a haystack hunt for just a mention of sin even though it's on every page of the Bible. And you'll never find a call for repentance. The topical index for sermons will turn up things like family, finances, giving, health, hope, life, peace, relationships. Never once did I find sin. And beyond sin, I think repentance has to be the most taboo topic in the church at large. Because it inherently involves convicting people, telling them they're in the wrong, and calling them to turn. That's not a popular thing to do. It's not fun. It's not jovial. You can't call someone to repent and smile at the same time. It just doesn't work. But that doesn't fit the image many churches want to put off. Their messaging is just only ever positive in a superficial sense, though. It just becomes superficial. One of the largest churches in America, this is their main message to people, front 
front and center on their website. Their tagline, we know life can be complicated. You just want to get it right. We're here to help. That's it. That's the mission of their church. Life is complicated. We're here to help. That's just the same innocuous, generic, self-help messaging of the world. Doesn't that sound like a far cry from the preaching of the Apostle Paul? Who wanted to know among the church nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Because that's the actual uplifting news. You want real uplifting? Go there. You know, this message of repentance, you just have to remember, if this rubs you the wrong way, you got a problem with the New Testament. Because the message of repentance was just spilling off the lips of Paul all the time and Peter all the time. All the apostles. How about Jesus? You want a summary of his preaching? Matthew 4, 17. Matthew shows this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the one sentence summary of Christ's own preaching. He just called people to repent. And don't forget that Christ himself commissioned the apostles in the church to preach repentance. Luke 24, 47, he, he commissioned them. He told, he told them that after his resurrection, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It's literally what he told them to do, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It's literally part of the church's commission. But it's absolutely disastrous, therefore, when a church abandons that commission. When a church doesn't see their sin, mourn over their sin. You know, there are many people who seriously grieve and even sink into depression when their favorite sports team loses, loses a championship. They will be affected. They will go into a real type of mourning. The same people will never even give a passing thought to the sin in their life and what it does before them and God. And their churches like this, they can't bear a serious thought. According to the Beatitudes, it kind of seems like Christ would say they're not blessed. That despite their buildings and their budgets, it seems like they're cursed. Because repentance is part of the gospel message. You don't have good news without it. When it's missing, it dilutes the church's potency. And sometimes all the way down to zero. When you don't make much of your sin you'll never make much of Christ. Ignoring sin and repentance, it diminishes Christ's glory and supremacy. If you take that away, why do you need Jesus? So you don't really need him as a savior because we don't talk about sin and repentance. So who, who is Jesus then? He turns into just a life coach who wants you to succeed in life. That's pretty much it. But, you know, that's not why they're praising him in heaven. No, rather, it says in Revelation 5, 9, that they exalt him continually because he was slain. And with his blood, he purchased for God men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Talk about serious, uh, taking sin seriously. That's why we're praising him. That's why we follow him. But when you diminish your sin or, or ignore it, you're actually diminishing Christ. When you give up the despair of Romans 7, 24, because it's not fun to think about, who will set me free from the body of this death? That means you also give up the joy of the next verse. Romans 7.25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And yes, our sin is an anchor that threatens to sink the soul. And it is depressing to talk about. It's not uplifting by itself. But only when you do that, you go down to the depths, you see your sin for what it is, how it's threatening to drown you. Only then do you actually see the Savior as the only life preserver. And you find a greater comfort. You find a comfort that lifts you to greater heights than this world can offer. I mean, you want, you want real comfort. You want to be truly uplifted. Just try the gospel. It's far better. Right? He, made, or he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.9. That's the type of truth that lifts you up to heaven. And so why sacrifice that for cheap earthly comfort? When you do that, a loss of repentance in the church actually dilutes the church's witness. The church ends up blending right into the culture where it's not distinctive at all. It becomes irrelevant. Like, why do I need church? I can find all this at any number of social clubs. And also the church becomes mute. It loses its prophetic voice to actually call the culture to repentance. I know how this all started. You're kind of the light, fluffy, superficial church we see in America today. It began as a reaction, extreme reaction to the fundamentalist churches of the early mid-1900s. You had Christians who were extremely serious about sin. The problem is they were more serious about everyone else's sin than their own. And they fell into legalism. They spent their time condemning everyone else except themselves. And they did not mourn over their own sins. And yeah, that did push people away, put people off. It had many negative effects. And it's wrong. That, that type of extreme has its own pitfalls to avoid. But as a result, over the years, the church swung in the opposite pendulum all the way. And we don't want any part of that. And so the solution must be what will never mention sin, will never convict, will never make anyone ever feel bad ever again. Will always smile. But no, that, that's not the right answer. The church is uh, most effective in glorifying God and reaching the lost when it simply lives out the Beatitudes. Just live and embody what Christ is teaching us here. That, that's all we have to do. That means we are going to be a people who take sin seriously. But foremost, our own sin. We see our sin. We mourn over our sin. We point the finger at ourselves, it breaks us, but then we recognize we, we have a Savior, Christ, the only hope, and His cross. And that lifts our souls to heaven. It gives us perfect peace and joy here on earth. We become the happiest people because we have deeper joy. And that's the, the seriously good news we take and share with the world. We're not going to shrink back from declaring the whole message. It, it does include repentance. We will do so seriously, but joyfully, because we want to share joy with the world. So we must be a people, individually and corporately, who take sin and repentance seriously for the sake of greater joy. Because don't forget, after confession and contrition comes conversion. Only after that do you get to true celebration. And this is what pleases God. God rejoices the most when his people repent because they love him. 
This is what impacts the world. This is how they will enter our midst and know God is truly among these people. And this is what blesses us. Because Christ said so. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. If you want this blessing for our church, we must live out these beatitudes. I think of Ecclesiastes 7, 2-3, which reminds us it's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. We have to be those who show the world the Lord's paradox. How the poor are actually quite rich. And the sad are actually quite happy. Those who have lost their lives have actually found them. And those who've been humbled have actually been exalted. We have to show them the true delight and joy of the Lord that comes with salvation. And the path there, if you've learned anything from our time in these Beatitudes, you should know that it's repentance. Blessed are the repentant. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3.19. Let's pray. Our Father God, we bow before you in praising and exalting and thanking you for what you've done for us in Christ the Savior. We, we need to be a people and a church who sees sin, doesn't hide from it, although it is a, a convicting reality. It burdens us. The right response is not to cover it up and ignore it, pretend it doesn't there. That's a sure ticket to you, uncovering it and judging. But individually and as a church, we must be those who, who confess it, who uncover and plead for mercy. And the glory is you've already given it to us in Christ. You lift our souls to greater heights because we know the depth of our depravity and lostness. We must be those who show that to the world and also just enjoy the blessings that come with it. It's not something anyone can do apart from your grace. You must open eyes to see sin and you must grant repentance by your sovereign will. And we pray you do that for all of us here this morning and for some here who never ever gone through this door, this low, humbling door of repentance that you would show them the way and and show them the the deep, lasting joy that's on the other side. It's what our world needs. uh, So many, uh, or so so large part of the church today seems to be caught up in superficiality and it's not what the world needs. It's not what the church needs. We need deep thoughts and deeper joy and anchor for the soul amidst truly perilous and turbulent times. And I pray, again, we can be those who, who have that we found it, and we can represent that. That's simply living these Beatitudes. We will be blessed. Thank you for that grace, and may we live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.